A few Sundays ago, I preached a sermon here, simply calling it, Are We Generous? And it's based on the book of Malachi. And I mentioned at the time that really the book of Malachi is such an interwoven, intertwined book that it would be good if we could just preach one long sermon on the whole thing because you really can't separate it very well. And so it would be good to just preach one long sermon. But we can't really do that given the nature of our of our service and so on. And so I just broke it up into two. And so I spoke, I preached the first message a few Sundays ago on April 28th, I believe it was. Today we're going to finish it. The book of Malachi is a book about confronting the people of God with the things that they were doing wrong. And sometimes these books are, these Bible books, they're not a pleasure to read. They're hard for us to, to, um, to grasp, and we think, well, nah, that's just old stuff. It doesn't really apply to us, and can't we just pass over it? But no, we can't. Uh, the New Testament writers clearly say that all the Bible is written for instruction, for reproof, for encouragement, and building up of the saints, and so we have to read those as well. And that book has been on my heart and mind for quite some time, and so that's why I picked it up and incorporated it into our sermon series when I put the sermon series together last year. So this morning I want to continue with it, and I simply focused in on the honesty factor in the book. The people in the book, in the book of Malachi, the people of Judah and Israel, the, the, the ones that had come back from the captivity had now already been living for about a hundred years in Jerusalem again. They were not honest people. Oh, we may say, yeah, well, we're honest people, so we can all go home now. We're honest doesn't apply to us. Really? How honest are we? These people were dishonest people. And to give you a little bit of a picture where I want to go with this, I just want you to imagine with me, go in your mind and your imagination this way. Okay, let's say you meet somebody who really wants to be your friend. Okay? You don't know this person very well, but they want to be your friend. So they invite you for a meal. And you go to this person's house, and they invite you in, welcome you very warmly, and say, sit at the table. I'm going to bring the food out in a moment. The food is just getting ready. So you sit down at the table. It looks beautiful. It's a nice home. It's a nice house. And this person goes to the kitchen and comes out with a plate of food. And you realize something's not quite the way you had expected it to be. It's a plate of leftovers. It doesn't quite smell good. I mean, it's been in the fridge for a week. He's just thrown together some hodgepodge, whatever, of this, a little bit of that, and just throw it in the microwave. And here, um, I'm, I'll, I'll get my plate next. And he goes out again, and this time he heads down the stairs and to the, out to the back door and comes, out, comes in. A nice big plate, a nice big round juicy steak and a baked potato with butter, some cream and some corn and some peas and some beans and some cooked carrots, and it just smells wonderful. And then he sits down with his plate. Now you're having a meal together. Some kind of friend, huh? How would you feel? That'd be the first time and the last time you'd go to that guy's house for lunch, would it not be? Next time he invites you over, say, I think I'm busy. I think I have plans. Oh, come, you don't like me? What would you do if that happened to you? Would you be happy? Would you be okay with it? Well, in a different way, in a nutshell, that's what God is telling the people of Judas. That's what you're doing to me. That's how you're treating my services. That's how you're treating my offerings. That's what you're doing to me. And you expect me to be pleased with you guys? God says, I'm not pleased. I'm not happy. 
Because everything else is more important to you than I am. So God was very upset. They were claiming to serve God. And God says, you're not serving me. You're serving yourselves. They were not honest. And so Malachi has some serious words of warning. And as I mentioned, this book is so interwoven, so back and forth, so all intertwined, it's very hard to keep it separate. But so we'll do our best. You know what our problem right now at this very second is? I hope so-and-so is listening. So-and-so should be in church right now. No, this is for me. It's for you. It's for us as LEMC. It's very easy to pinpoint and look around. Who should be hearing? Who should be listening? It's we. It's us. This book was in the Bible for a purpose, and we need to listen to this. You and I need to be careful how we treat God. The question I want to ask ourselves is, are we honest with God? Or are we pretending? And you know what? Very often people think they're sincere. They think they're, they think they're true, but they're not. And it, all of a sudden the, the, the veil is lifted, the door it opens, and I didn't know I was like that. So we want to look at the last two chapters of Malachi this, this morning for a sermon. They were dishonest with God. God was aware. They thought they were doing okay. I mean, come on, if you come to my house and I serve you a plate of leftover, what's the problem with that? It's food. What's your problem? Take it or leave it. You may say, I'll, I'll just leave it. But it's amazing how self-deceived, how blind and self-righteous people can get. Religion does strange things to people. When I say religion, I don't mean a belief in God. I mean when the focus comes about a certain type of behavior, a tradition, a culture, and that overrides everything. Today in our time, we live after the story of Malachi, way after. And things back then, so we, we see things from a different angle, from a different perspective. They did not have the Holy Spirit like we do living in us today. They were under a different covenant, but God was the same. But let's begin reading. Malachi chapter 3, begin reading verse 1. It says this, Look, I'm sending my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. It's talking about John the Baptist. In the coming of Christ. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. To put this in a nutshell, God is talking to the people through Malachi the prophet and saying, I will send my messenger, the one you're looking for. I will send my messenger, the, 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 um, the messenger of the covenant whom you say you're looking for, you eagerly wait to see. But there's something very interesting here. It's the way the words are worded. Let's turn to the next one. Next slide here. It says this. I've underlined this. The Lord you are seeking, whom you look for so eagerly. Have you ever asked somebody something and they say, you don't want to know. Trust me, you don't want to know. You ever had that happen to you? Somebody says, you don't want to know. I think that is the implication here. You guys don't want to know. You don't know who you're talking about. You think you do, but you don't. You see, they were not in fellowship with God. They were in fellowship with religion, with custom, with tradition, with performance, but not God. They believed they were in good standing. The prophets, you're looking for the Messiah? You don't want to meet the Messiah. You don't know who you're asking for. In fact, Jesus himself said the same thing to his disciples one time just before he was arrested and killed. He said, the guy says, you know what, Lord, we'd like to sit in your kingdom, one on the right, one on the left, and... Jesus says, you guys don't know what you're asking for. 
Actually, it was a bit earlier, several times that happened. One time, the apostle's mother comes and says, Oh, I'd like my son to sit on your right, and one the other son on your left. And he says, You don't know what you're asking for. Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm being baptized with? Oh, we can. She says, You don't know about it. You see, the people were making God out to be somebody or something else than he really was. They were not ready to meet him. You see, what their expectations were, what the Messiah, the messenger would be like, what he would do, what his real mission was, what they thought and what he actually would do was 180 opposites. You see, here's the deal. The people of Israel thought one day God would come, send someone who they could worship in the context of an earthly, worldly power. They thought God would be who they thought he would be. They actually believed they had God figured out. That God was who they thought he was. Malachi says, no. You have no idea who you're dealing with. You don't know God. And you certainly don't get to dictate to God what he will or won't do. Let me, let me say a few things here. God will never allow himself to be made into an idol. Let me repeat that. God will never allow himself to be made into an idol. God will never allow people to use him as an idol. Let me explain that. When we have an idol, it is simply an object, a thing, or a person, or an idea that we've chosen as our focal point around which our whole life revolves. Our energy, our trust, our objective, everything goes into it. It's for our benefit, with no regard to the person, to to somebody else. This is one of the greatest lies anybody can fall for. Thinking they're honest, meanwhile, it's all about themselves. It's self-deception. And deceived people don't know. Yeah, I'm deceived, but it's okay. In fact, but there are some who know better. In fact, maybe more than we think. I'll, I'll read a letter this, uh, this morning that I picked up this morning that I thought was fitting to give this and kind of put perspective here. But let me give a warning here. Always be careful around people who have got all figured out who always know everything, and their way is the only way. They're the right way. They want you to conform to their idea of who God is. They exalt themselves, they're right after, how could they possibly be wrong? The Jews were like that, and the Jews in Jesus' day were like that. Malachi is talking to them. So what does the prophet do? Malachi gives the people a word picture of what they would expect. Let's read verse 2. He says, but who will be able to endure when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal, or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will set like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. So that's what he was coming to do. Not coming and saying, hey, nice job, good job, everybody, good job, everybody, nice, well done, good job, everybody. No, he says he's going to come to straighten things out. In other words, you don't want to meet him. These people had lost their fear of God. They had lowered God down to their level, to their bidding, and customized him into their own self-interpreted ways of how they thought things should be. The messenger is described like a blazing fire, a word picture of hot, burning entity that's going to burn or purify whatever exists. There's no in between here. What's not going to get refined and made clean will burn away into nothing. In essence, all the dishonesty, all the lying, the cheating that they were doing would burn away. 
This goes across the board to preachers and everything. In fact, he says, the Levites, verse 3, the Levites, the pastors, they're going to get it too. In fact, this is a, a very sobering thought because in James chapter 3, in the New Testament, James says, those who teach will be judged more severely. It's not going to be easy. It's going to hurt. It's going to be tough. They'll be dying. A lot of things look very different when it, when it happens, Malachi writes. In short, God is going to clean house. He's going to give his people a makeover. All the way down from the pastors who are supposed to lead and all the way down to the people who come through the doors in the congregation. All the dishonest living will be burned away and his people will experience a renovation. It will disappear. In verse 4 it says, Then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in the past. You know what? He wasn't accepting them now. He wasn't happy with them. He wasn't okay with them. But then after the refining, after the makeover, then he will again. There is hope. There is beauty in this story. But regardless, they would undergo a process of cleaning. They had sinned. They had contaminated themselves. There's only one way out of a contamination. Get a bath. Get cleansed. Get cleaned. It wasn't going to be pretty. Some of you moms and dads know about this. Little Junior goes outside. Don't play in the mud. Little Junior plays in the mud. The next thing you know, little Junior has to go inside. Now we're going to clean you. And under the shower it goes. Maybe a cold one. Scrub, 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 scrub. Ow, ow. Well, that's what happens when you get dirty. Maybe next time. Verse 5, he says, and God's not finished. He's not, he's, he has it out. He says, at that time I will put you on trial. I'm eager to witness against all the sorcerers, the adulterers, and the liars. I'll speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. God is upset. Prophet speaks the words of God to the people. At this time, I think if it was an average normal congregation, I would just feel like saying to, if I was in the pew, I would say, okay, now that's enough, that's enough. Don't, don't need to hear that. Don't say anymore, it's too terrifying, it's too scary. But let's face it, this is literally what happened to the people of God in the Old Testament. What makes us think God has changed, He hasn't changed. We're under the covenant of grace, which ups the ante, not lowers it. For a person charged with a crime, going to court, court is not a pleasant experience. If you've been to court, you know what I'm talking about. He, God I'm going to take you to court, I'm going to have a trial, we're going to confront this. There was all kinds of immoral stuff going on, adultery, sorcery, people cheating each other, oppressing the orphans, the, the, the underprivileged. He says, you've lost, my, you've lost fear of me. I've underlined that in the second slide, verse 5. says, for these people do not fear me. Those are hard words. But let's just pause for a moment. Let's ask ourselves this question. Has it really changed do people fear God in our country, in our community? Do people fear God in our church? Let's not point the fingers too far away. Let's point them at ourselves. So the question is, are we living honestly? What's our reputation? After that statement, the prophet comes right back with his focus on God and continues with God's words. Verse 6, he says, I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. You don't want God to change. Because if he would, then he would give up on us. 
He says, ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. He's not finished. He has grace. He has mercy. But it has to be applied. God is pointing out the problems. He holds out grace, giving them an opportunity to repent. But these people had continually, on and off, been modifying and customizing God's, God's laws for their own convenience. Whatever feels good. By the way, I, I listened to some social media clips, and there was, there's one I watched the other day. Somebody was interviewing somebody about, that was a, something about religion, and make a, just made a bizarre statement and said, now, is that true? Do you think that's true? And the person who was, who was doing this was actually exaggerating extremely just to get a point across. Do you know what the, the respondent said, uh, the other person from the culture, I don't know who it was or anything, but said, if that's their truth, it's their truth. If it's true for them, it's true for them. Like, really? You actually believe that? Nothing is, is getting so biz- is bizarre enough that people start questioning it. And they argue with God. Let's look at verse, the next one, the next slide here, the last part of verse 7. But you ask, how can we return when we've never gone away? Really? Here's a, here, here it just stops for me. If this was not in the Bible, we would seriously question it if it actually said that. But it's there. And given the context and the history of the story, it makes it all the more bizarre. The audacity of these people. They confront God. We've never left you. They actually believed all their immoral, dishonest, selfish living, all the lying and the corruption. We're not godless people. How blind could they get? I'm reminded of religious groups of people in our time who hold on to man-made traditions, man-made religion, or changed religion, or whatever you want to call it, perversion, and call themselves Christians, endorsing it all. And then in the end, que sera, sera. What will be, will be. As if nothing matters anymore. But God's not finished. Next one, he says, you've cheated me. But you ask, what, did you, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You've cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me. You're under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. God is talking again through Malachi. You've not been honest, he's saying. You've, first you say you haven't left me. And you steal from me. That Good people in good relations don't do that. He's accusing them of stealing. Had they not brought their gifts? Yes, they had. So what's the problem? God says, yeah, you give me that leftover stuff. You give me that stuff that you won't have for yourself. That's what you're giving me. They're enjoying fancy houses, fancy lifestyles, fancy living. But God's not in it. They're not being honest. They're trying to make it look like they're living for God. But they're giving God the rejects, the no good, the warm-ups. The what they can't sell on the market, the crumbs, the garbage. God's not pleased. One man once wrote this, he said, You can never give to God... What we owe him, we just paying it back. We, we owe it to him. It's not like, okay, I'll be generous to you, Lord. I'll be generous. No, he owns it in the first place. He said, you can do two things with what God entrusts into our care. First of all, we're just stewards. That's all we are. We're just stewards. We can do one of two things. We can put it where it belongs or we can steal it.
And so in verse 10, he continues on. He's, and God's still talking through Malachi. He says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I'll pour out a blessing so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I'll guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they go ripe says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. We just need to stop here for a bit. I need to comment on the timing of this passage. In that day and age, in that period of time, that time period, the old covenant, God had literally promised his people Israel a material, physical blessing if they would obey his laws. If they would love him with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, obey his laws, then they would be under this physical blessing, a geographical, political nation, blessed by God. Under the new covenant, it's a new covenant. We don't have that physical material blessing. We have a spiritual one. But they were instructed how they're supposed to live. And so, today as God's children under the new covenant, we don't have that promise that if we're going to give 10%, that God's going to make us rich, make us millionaires. That's not what the Bible teaches. And the other question someone might ask, well, does this mean that I should now give 10% of everything I have? Maybe that's the wrong question. God does not want the leftover food in your fridge. He doesn't even want the good food in your fridge. He doesn't even want the fridge. He doesn't even want the fridge, the house in which the fridge is. He wants you. Once he has you, he has it all. And then you as a steward get to decide what goes where. And about this whole concept of tithing, It's a very good principle to live by, but it's not a saved or lost issue. You don't tithe, you go to hell. You tithe, you go to heaven. That's not what this is about. But where's the heart? Are you honest with God in your giving? For some people, a tithe is a very small amount. I mean, they still have tons left over. For some, it's a real stretch. I personally, I practice it, but I'm not saying that this is now the, the hinge on which salvation rests. No. But Jesus had something to say, that, say about that in Matthew 23, verse 23, because the Pharisees, they got this. Okay, we better tithe or else. And he says to them in Matthew 23, 23, he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites? You're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but don't neglect the more important things. You can't customize it. In case someone is by now wondering, should I give 10% of my income? As I said before, it's not a law the way it was then. It's a relationship matter now. So what are you going to put before your guest? The leftover, seven-day-old, not-so-good-smelling plate of food? Or are you going to say, the steak's for you, I'll eat the leftover? And in case someone thinks, real good, at least I don't have to tithe, let me just say it this way. God's law for the church in the New Testament is bigger than in the Old Testament. Because Jesus, in the Old Testament, it was a physical material blessing. Now it's a spiritual one. Now God wants all of it. He wants to rule in our hearts. The law of love did not diminish with the coming of Christ. It grew. God was the one who these people of Israel owed everything to. They had been disobedient. They had gone into captivity. They were back in their promised land for a number of years already. They had built up the temple. They had built houses and, and things were, had settled down, but they had forgotten about God. 
So hear me carefully. God is not so much interested in the amount that you give as why you give it. God's not interested in the amount of time you give him as in the reason why you give him the time. God wants you. He doesn't care about that steak on your barbecue. Sure, it's nice, but hey, the friendship is what matters. And most certainly don't give him leftovers. Because you don't like to be given leftovers. He wants you. He wants us honest people. You see, Jesus never lowered the bar. He always raised it. Sometimes we think like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not in the Old Testament. I'm so glad this law doesn't apply to me. Wait a minute. We don't even get to decide anymore. Yes, we can choose. We can reject him or accept him, but Jesus raised the bar in everything. He raised the bar from anger to murder. It used to be said, he says, don't kill. I tell you, don't be angry. If you are, you're a murderer. He raised the bar on having stuff. He says, don't be greedy. He says, desiring stuff and greed. He puts that, that wanting stuff in the greed category. He puts this, oh, don't commit adultery. He says, okay, that's great. Don't commit adultery. But he says, I'm going to put lust right in that category too. But somehow when it comes to our stuff, our time, our resources, then it's okay to just lower it. To just diminish, oh, okay, God will be okay with leftovers. When I have time. When it's convenient for me. After I've paid this off. Our calling is to live free, filled with the Spirit of God, living honest and generous lives in all that we do. Verse 13, he says, You have said terrible things about me, says the Lord. But you say, what do you mean? What have we said against you? But they're arguing. God says, you have said, what's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying His commands or by trying to show the Lord of God of heaven's armies that we're sorry for our sins? From now on, we will call the arrogant blessed. For those who do evil get rich, and those who dare God to punish them suffer no harm. They're upset. How dare you confront us? How dare you challenge us? We're doing fine. We're okay. We're good people. This is stuff, heavy stuff. They're using themselves as the benchmark to evaluate how good they've been. It's never a good idea to do that. We must always look in the Word of God as a mirror and see what it tells us about us. Verse 15 is very, very sobering. When people come to the point where they intentionally and deliberately disregard God's command, because as they say, obeying God's command does not work, it's not needed, it's not important, that's the point. They shut the door on God's grace and they limit Him. God cannot help people who shut Him out. And He will not force Himself on someone who rejects Him. And repeatedly we find story after story in the Old Testament where God tried to get their attention, but He had to give them over to their selfish, sinful ways. Paul writes about that in Romans, how that goes. But in case we think it is all bad, there's no hope, that's all just dire and bad. No, it's not. Let's continue verse 16. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with each other, and the Lord listened to what they said. In His presence a scroll of remembrance was written to record the names of those who feared Him and always thought about the honor of His name. They will be My people, says the Lord of heaven's armies. On the day when I act in judgment, they will be my own special treasure. I will spare them as a father spares an obedient child. Then you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. 
a promise given, a special promise. They will be his people. This does not mean, however, that God's children under the new covenant will not face suffering or persecution or hardship, but they have God's favor and his protection. Their souls will be protected. When the judgment comes, they will be spared. It's a comforting passage for us to read and take to heart. And then in Malachi 4, we'll quickly go through that. We read of what it will be like when the awful judgment day comes. He says, The Lord of heaven's army says, The day of judgment is coming, burning like a furnace. On that day, the arrogant and the wicked will be burnt like straw. They will be consumed, roots, branches, and all. Those who believe it didn't matter how they lived, pretended that they were real when actually they were not, they're going to face reality. Who trusted in their own goodness, excused their sin, it won't go so well. I want to read a letter that I read this morning. I made a copy of it. And this is what it looks like when people customize their faith and actually just walk away from God against better knowledge. It's a letter out of a devotional. A man, a father, writes to his son. He starts, Dear son, before I start, I've, I've just, I won't mention the names here. Before I, this is an old letter from the States, so it's not, none of us here around here. But before I start this letter to you, I must tell you that I love you, and none of what's happened or is going to happen in any way is your fault. I've been as good a father as, if I had been as good a father as you are a son, there would be no need for me to write to you now. Over the years, I've been unfaithful to your mother in thoughts and well as in deeds. Because your mother had complete trust in me, I was able to cover up lying to her. Last May, I met a woman in Sacramento. Her name is Susan. I'm going to leave your mother and go live with her. What I've done is morally wrong, and I hope you will not follow in my ways. When you meet the right woman, make a lifetime commitment to her. I was never able to do this, and that has caused much sorrow. Please do not allow this to change your feelings about your mother and I. We love you very much and both need your love now even more than before. We will always be your family and be here for you even though we'll be living apart. Love you, Dad. What do you say to that? It's worth nothing. That's what that's worth. That's what that is worth. What about self-denial? What about repenting? What about turning to God and saying, okay, I will listen to this. I will come back to God. Then we hear this stuff. Oh, God is love. God is grace. God is merciful. Spitting in his face and expecting him to, to be okay with it. If people insist that they can live in sin and have God's grace and God's approval, they're wrong. Simply wrong. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. We talk about people going to hell and burning in the fire forever. and He says, God simply accommodates people. It's all he does. Yes, in a way, he says, go into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. It's not even prepared for us, for the devil and his angels. But when we say to God, okay, my will be done, he says, okay, your will be done. That's where it takes us. Is there then no hope? Yes, there is. There's the blood of Christ that Jesus shed on the cross. And if a man like I just read about in the letter, if he applied that, he wouldn't do what he did. 
He wouldn't be willing to destroy his family to, to satisfy his cravings. What happened to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me? It's with good reason Jesus warns us repeatedly in the Bible to stay awake, to watch and be alert because we can be led astray. I want to end on a positive note. Positive note verse 2 of chapter 4. Listen to this. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves let out to pasture. On the day when I act, you will tread upon the wicked as if they were dust under your feet, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Again, Malachi speaking to the people from God. That's what honest living brings. That's what it leads to. It becomes joy and freedom. Living in truth and honesty, there's nothing like it. Someone once said, truth fears no investigation. When you live an honest life, you have nothing to hide, nothing to bury, nothing to be worried about. Oh, it's not always going to be easy, but it's going to be good. Then verse 4, it says, he says to them, Remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, all the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Otherwise, it will come and strike the land with a curse. God's word has always been central. It always was central, always is central. It always will be central. We must not let that go. Living honestly is hard for the body. It is a battle, self-denial. The call to repentance is real. The question is not, will you do it perfectly? The question is, are you walking that path? Are you and I allowing God's grace to draw us and mold us and shape us into His children? It's not going to be easy. Like I said, it's going to be painful. But the decision is yours and mine to make. Let's decide to live honest lives. Lord Jesus, we want to be thankful this morning for your grace to us. We are a very blessed people. We are also privileged in many ways. But so were your people. So were they. They, they had everything we have. They didn't have the new covenant, but they had your grace, your mercy. You wanted them to apply it. You extended it to them. And yet, they refuse to acknowledge their own need for repentance. May we not follow that same path. Lord, give us the wisdom, give us the wherewithal we need to walk in humility and repentance and to walk with you and live honest lives. In Jesus' name, amen.